Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. President Trump gave one of his best speeches yet. Uh, The speech that he gave in Poland uh, earlier today was, I have to say, phenomenal. Um, It hit on major issues of his uh, presidency. He gave the speech in Warsaw, um, and he talked about defending civilization and the fact that the Poles and our European allies are necessary in this fight for what we call Western civilization. Uh, It was a speech that even I saw some ardent, some just tried-and-true Trump haters had to stop and say, that was a pretty good speech. It was presidential. It was uh, inspiring. And it showed a command and understanding and willingness to meet head-on the biggest challenges now facing our civilization, which we should speak about it in those terms, by the way. We shouldn't shy away from this. I know that as part of the multiculturalist brainwashing that we've all undergone as a result of the left's takeover of academia, of the media, and increasingly of corporate America as well, and certainly of Hollywood, that's been uh, the case for a long time, we are to believe that really all cultures around the world are the same. I mean, different food, but, you know, the same values. Nonsense. It's just not true. Some cultures value the individual much more than others. Some cultures value rule of law more than others. Minority rights more than others. The role of women is elevated or suppressed, depending on which country and which culture we're talking about. In fact, if you have not read it, I would recommend you to go back and just thumb through either the original essay, which was uh, published in Foreign Affairs, the Journal of the Council on Foreign Relations, a place where I uh, interned. I was uh, fetching coffee for some very fancy scholars a long, long time ago, and uh, one or two conspiracy theorists have picked up on that as me being part of the Illuminati. I wish, as I'm fond of saying, I think the Illuminati would live in a bigger apartment than I do. Nonetheless, um, it might be more than one room. Uh, The Council on Foreign Relations published an article called The Clash of Civilizations, And then it was also expanded by Samuel Huntington, the author, into a larger work, a full-length book, uh, in which he identifies civilizations from around the world and breaks it down into not just what each civilization stands for and what some of the defining characteristics of them are. And you you know there is Western civilization, there's uh, Islam is identified as an independent civilization, uh, there is China, uh, there's the Orthodox Russia. I mean, there's some variation, is um, Latin, Spanish-speaking America. Uh, there's some variation in where people 
draw the lines and what they consider to be a, an independent civilization. And uh, others would say, you know, Western civilization is encompasses all of the all of all of Latin America and all of Russia. Others say, well, Russia is really a separate Orthodox civilization. So it's not obvious. It's not it's not that there aren't some blurred lines between different civilizations here and there. But civilization matters. It matters for the future of, well, all of humanity, but it also matters in the context of our own country, uh, because a willingness to replicate values is first premised on an understanding of those values and a defense of those values, because otherwise they erode, they go away, and who knows uh, what dark path we will walk down if we don't have a president, a, a government, an American people, most importantly, that views itself as standing for something that is unique, that is different, that, yes, is exceptional in the world. Now, there is something quite different about the tone, about the approach that President Trump took today from what we had seen with the previous administration under President Barack Obama. And it's the, the view of the of America, the view of America and its role in the world that Obama had is not singular to Obama by any stretch. It is commonplace on the left. It's really the dominant uh, geopolitical ideology of the Democrat Party right now, which is that America is one of many countries. There are all these different countries. And uh, you... You know, the, the Greeks think they're exceptional. I, mean, I forget what the exact line was Obama said, but, you know, America is exceptional in the same way that the Greeks think they're exceptional and other people think they're exceptional, too. Right. I mean, you know, everyone's got their thing. Everyone's got their strengths and weaknesses. It's really a, a form of instead of uh, moral relativism, you have cultural relativism or civilizational relativism, meaning that everything is kind of more or less on the same plane. Right. There's really no difference between Western civilization and Islamic civilization. It's just, you know, linguistically different. The food's different. Clothing's different, right? But but those are just uh, secondary, uh, unimportant uh, attributes of a civilization. And it should be noted that they often change, and they're in a constant, uh, a constant flux, right? What, what we think of as culture, uh, which can be described as food, clothing, uh, manner, methods, you know, methods of I interacting with people. Um, that's one way to describe culture. But then there's also rule of law, uh, civic duty, sense of one's place in society, uh, treatment of those who are not a part of that community. I mean, y you can take culture in any number of directions. But culture is downstream. In fact, culture is the organizational unit that is below civilization. Civilization is at the top of the of the hierarchy. And Western civilization is the most important in the world and has been for centuries now when it comes to the advancement of humankind, the progress of the, the human race all over the world. That's not to say there aren't contributions from other civilizations. There certainly are. But Western civilization has led to unbelievable prosperity. I mean, unbelievable in the sense that no one a few centuries ago would have thought it possible that we could be living in countries with hundreds of millions, in some cases even over a billion, inhabitants who are fed, who have access to electricity and running water. And, and this is largely a product of 
the civilization in which not only we find ourselves, but is led by our country. And that's a unique role. There's something very special. And I know this comes right after Independence Day weekend, and I I do hope you all had a great Fourth of July. But there's something unique and powerful and profound about America, not just as the uh, guarantor of some degree of international stability, some degree of decency between states on the world stage. Not to say that there aren't terrible things happening all the time. I'm well aware of that. We'll talk more here, of course, about the Syrian civil war, about uh, human rights in China, about uh, jihadists, about all any number of things, right? Any number of problems and And there's certainly no shortage of human suffering and oppression and tyranny around the world. America still has a lot of work to do. That's not to say that we are going to solve all these problems for the rest of the world, but at least we can be an example. And at least we can be that shining city on a hill. We can be that beacon of, yes, that beacon of freedom. I know it sounds like I'm a pageant contestant, but it's true. It's the reality. The rest of the world, for all the polls we see about how America is uh, not beloved in this country or that country, they largely view us with disdain, and it's mostly our government, because of uh, either a misunderstanding of history and policy or envy or a combination of those things. They all know. Anyone with a real grasp of the world and the way countries function, they all know deep down, people who are informed around the world, that America is special, unique, and is a blessing on this earth. And to have a president who speaks about it in that way is deeply refreshing. To have a president who does not take it upon himself to apologize, to prevaricate about our role in the world, to bow to foreign leaders, to take every opportunity to downplay the greatness of this country, a greatness that has only been created because of generations that came before us and countless members of the United States military who have served and in many cases uh, died fighting for this country. So, I mean, the, the president is our really chief ambassador to the world. I know you'd say the secretary of state technically, but the the president is our representative for the rest of the world. And it should never be the case that we have a president who feels the need to apologize for the rest of us. I don't want a president who apologizes. I want a president who understands just how fantastic, how great, how special, how unique, how powerful and important this country is for all of us who live here and for the rest of the world. America is the light. We should have a president who speaks about it in that way. And it's not going to be this way forever unless we are vigilant, unless we fight for it. And I think that's the recognition that many had listening to President Trump today. He understands. And I know that he has speech writers and this is a a collaboration between the top people in his White House. But he's reading it before he's saying it, and the way he delivers it and the words that he chooses to include in the speech are indicative of a mindset, right? There was no surprise today. We know that President Trump thinks that this is a special country. We know that American greatness is a central theme, not just of this president, but of those who support him. They want somebody representing us, yes, in this country at the top of government, but also around the world, who really believes that we are a magnificent 
addition to human history, that America is uh, the greatest single source of good, truth, stability, and progress, real progress, that has ever existed. But we are in dangerous times. We see this with North Korea. We see this with uh, jihadists who are part of an international global insurgency that tries to destroy our way of life by slowly undermining it and by convincing us to have a defeatist attitude, convincing us that we cannot prevail. We also have uh, statists within our own midst, whether uh, you know here at home or among our allies abroad, who believe that individual freedom is not something that should be celebrated, that it should be truncated, it should be increasingly limited, and that experts should be put in charge, that you don't have any inherent rights, that you don't get to choose what the health care for your infant will be. The state will make that decision for you. These are forces, whether statism, jihadism, uh, the, the tyranny of foreign states, that seek to not just slowly uh, subvert America, but in time to destroy us, to destroy what this country stands for. And Western civilization is under assault. It is not something that will endure forever. There was this whole period of time after the fall of Rome, people refer to it as the Dark Ages. Well, it's because you had a collapse of a great civilization and there were, uh, and I know people say, well, Buck, it moved, and there, there was Constantinople, and yeah, but for a long period of time, Western civilization was in retreat, and if we do not watch out, we will fall into that same state of decline, uh, and that was part of what President Trump discussed today. I, I want to play some of his words for you and get more into the analysis of both what he said as well as what's going on at the G20. Uh, you've obviously got all kinds of crazy protesters running around there causing problems, We'll also discuss uh, the latest on national security. We've got people joining to talk about media. I've got a whole uh, couple of segments planned on tran the current state of transgender rights, which is just mind-blowing what's going on there. Uh, packed show today, team. Uh, can't wait to get into more of it with you back after this break. The fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. It is the fundamental question of our time. And, and this is what has so rocked Europe in recent years, uh, the, the recognition that culture matters, that if you don't have a, a, a national culture and identity anymore, if you allow it to be, uh, to be dissolved in favor of international norms, whatever that means, internationalist institutions, if you allow for governance that no longer takes into account what is happening on the ground, but is just decided uh, only far away by people who have no connection to nor understanding of the people that they seek to govern, uh, then you have a problem. It's true in Europe. It's uh, true here in America to a lesser extent as well. Uh, but the Europeans have seen because of the mass migration of recent years, that there are limits uh, to there are limits to assimilation. There needs to be enough time for the newly arrived to adopt the ways of the countries uh, in in which they find themselves, or in which rather they have come to, uh, the countries they have come to. 
So I, I think that the president touched on some very important issues there. By the way, he spoke specifically uh, about welcoming newcomers. Here's what he had to say. America and Europe have suffered one terror attack after another. We're going to get it to stop. I called on the leaders of more than 50 Muslim nations to join together to drive out this menace which threatens all of humanity. We must stand united against these shared enemies to strip them of their territory and their funding and their networks and any form of ideological support that they may have. While we will always welcome new citizens who share our values and love our people, our borders will always be closed to terrorism and extremism of any kind. Extremism of any kind, the president says. Uh, This is a breath of fresh air. I know a lot of you who... Uh, understand or or see um, a method to what the media calls madness, but is really just Trump being Trump. Uh, I think today you felt some degree of uh, continued vindication with the president giving what was one just an excellent speech. It, it hit all. I I watched the whole thing. It hit all the right notes, and uh, beyond that, I think it set up what the. Trump doctrine will begin to look like. Uh, The Trump doctrine is not something that we could define just yet. In fact, a big part of Trump's doctrine so far has been, I'm not going to tell you what the doctrine is. We're going to see how things go. Of course, critics say that that just means they don't have policies in place. Others say, well, they're looking at everything and they're making uh, the best decisions that they can under the circumstances and based upon the U.S.'s geopolitical position, which it, of course, inherited from the Obama administration. So uh, with all that, I think a a form of uh, the Trump doctrine is beginning to come together. And it is that um, American greatness will be the unifying principle of all policies on the world stage, that a, a first and foremost an understanding of America's role uh, as all of the things that I said before, the the guarantor, the uh, the place of liberty for all the rest of the world to admire and, and hopefully in their own time duplicate, replicate, um, that that comes first and foremost, but also that American security and the interests of those individuals who are fortunate enough, and we are so lucky to have been born in this country or to have become uh, residents, citizens of this country— by choice. Uh, we are so lucky, all of us, who call this country home, and you just listen to this president speak and you get the sense from him that he agrees, that he does see something particularly uh, wonderful about America, and that was, I think, very—that was refreshing. Uh, he does not take this approach that you see that's so common on the left, which is just, oh, you know, America's not as great as people say it is. Actually— It's even better than most. We'll be back. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Before I get to the uh, much anticipated sit down between President Donald Trump and Uh, President Vladimir Putin of Russia, I just wanted to 
play this this line from the speech that I found particularly stirring. This is President Trump in Warsaw uh, and uh, before heading to the G20 in Hamburg. We'll get into the G20 coming up here in a little bit. And then, as I said, later on the show, we've got a bunch of guests joining. We'll talk about the transgender rights movement. I've got some updates for you on that. Transgender uh, pediatric care is now a, a thing that we have to talk about because of what's going on. Uh, and I've got a bunch of other things I want to get to. But uh, first, this is one of the lines that really stuck out for me from the president's speech uh, in Warsaw, Poland. us The defense of the West ultimately rests not only on means, but also on the will of its people to prevail and be successful and get what you have to have. The fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. Do we have the confidence in our values to defend them at any cost? Do we have enough respect for our citizens to protect our borders? Do we have the desire and the courage to preserve our civilization in the face of those who would subvert and destroy it? Essential points from the President of the United States. Defending our values, it's something that you hear politicians talk about, and you'll see members of the media uh, sneer at the notion that we even need to worry about that, because doesn't every, everyone shares our values, right? Everyone believes in rule of law and uh, religious pluralism and uh, the rights of, of minorities, both religious and ethnic, and uh, you name it, right? I mean, everyone believes in that. But wait, why are so many countries deficient in those categories? Why do we see so much oppression and tyranny and sectarianism and racism? Oh, racism on the world stage, something that many Americans are not aware of because our own media doesn't much talk about it. But racism exists all over the world, really. Uh, and it, it is actually much worse in most of the world uh, where there are different groups, different ethnic groups coming together than anything that you would see here in America. Those of you who have spent time in the uh, in the Middle East, those of you who spent time in South Asia, uh, if you get to know the culture well enough, you start to say, hold on a second. So in Saudi Arabia, if you are a migrant worker from South Asia, you're, you're treated as though you're not entirely human by the by many Saudis, right? That, that, and that's commonplace. I mean, I could go on with example after after example all over the world, but that's just one that, that comes to mind. Uh, the fact of the matter is that America has spent so much more time coming to grips with and trying to overcome racism than many other countries. Uh, and we don't give ourselves, certainly the media doesn't give us nearly enough credit for all of the progress that has been made and, and for the fact that overall, we, we do get along as a country from all different backgrounds, all different races and ethnicities. We are a remarkably uh, peaceful, kind and decent people, all 320 million of us. I know there's obviously a lot of exceptions, a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of jerks running around, too. But America overall, given uh, the size of this country and uh, the fact that we have been as open to as many different cultures and backgrounds as we have in over the years, uh, it's remarkable how well we do. And our culture is a central part of that. Uh, and I think that the president was making sure that it was known, that it is known, 
that this administration believes that there are ideas, there are principles that we have to be willing to defend, even if they offend. Meaning that uh, I, I talked to you here on the on the show about uh, practices like yesterday we discussed FGM, um, but there are any number of different uh, ideologies and approaches to day-to-day life that conflict with our core values, we have to not just be willing to say that we want, that we'll keep things the way they are here, but also that the way we do things in a whole variety of respects in America and in Western civilization more broadly is better than in other places around the world. Uh, the, the, the treatment of women in America is just, and Western civilization, we can use these two things somewhat interchangeably for the purposes of our discussion, it's just better than it is in most most of the rest of the world. Uh, our respect for, as a people, our respect for the rule of law is better than in most of the rest of the world. You could say that that's something that we inherited uh, to some degree from our British, uh, well, originally overlords, but our British forefathers. Um, in fact, I think uh, when Orwell was writing, uh, writing uh, right before the Second World War, uh, he said that the one thing that really notes, uh, the, the one thing that really you know, denotes Englishmen and, and what is different and unique about Englishmen than people from other parts of the world in his experience. And he had been not really, this is not well known about Orwell. He, he was a police officer. His real name was Eric Blair. Uh, we know him as George Orwell, one of the most important uh, English authors of the 20th century. Certainly, I think you could say in the top five, some people would say the most important. Uh, his name was Eric Blair. He served as a, as a colonial uh, British a police officer in Burma for a period of time, and he also went and fought in Catalonia in Spain against the fascist uh, Franco regime and took a bullet in the neck for his trouble. He wrote a memoir of it called Homage to Catalonia, which I, I highly recommend to all of you. It's not not nearly assigned or, or spoken of enough. With Orwell, you usually jump right to his two great classics, one written as a children's book, but one that every adult should be quite familiar with and, and, and is worth reading even no matter what age you are, uh, Animal Farm. And then, of course, his most famous work, 1984, um, which has seen a surge in readership, apparently, in the Trump era, which I find fascinating because it is, in fact, the Democrat Party that is much more closely aligned with the omnipresent and uh, unending statism that is described via Big Brother and the various uh, instruments and implementations of the state of a of a totalitarian state, which is largely uh, enforced through constant uh, m- media. By the way, in 1984, with the uh, Two Minutes Hate and Emmanuel Goldstein and uh, the the unending wars that change with different parties, and no one knows why they just know they're supposed to hate them. Um, so, I, I have gone off on a rant about 1984 and Orwell, and I forget even why I was telling you about this. Uh, but nonetheless, oh yes, the greatness of Western civilization, sorry, the greatness of Western civilization and uh, the difference between a Brit and really an American and much of the rest of the world is, in fact, our respect for the law. You know, whether you're the lowliest of the low in society, you know, the an impoverished uh, drunkard lying in the street or uh, the most connected, famous citizen, powerful citizen, rich citizen in in the country. You you have some understanding. I know that there are different 
ways that the law is implemented depending on your power and and it's it's an imperfect system but there's some belief that the law exists to protect you uh, that the law is there and that we all both have to abide by it and can seek some level of protection that's that's a a pillar, really, of what we consider to be Western civilization, but also our willingness to say that just some of our stuff is better. Uh, the way that we do things is, uh, is in fact, better. That free markets are better than statism uh, and state-directed and state-driven uh, economic activity. That central planning is, in fact, inferior in the aggregate, to decisions made at a more localized level, uh, and that individual freedom and ingenuity are the spark for the conflagration of prosperity that we have seen as a result of, well, capitalism, right? So I know these are all broad concepts, and I, I probably could just spend the whole three hours today, like I know a lot of other shows will, just yelling about how terrible CNN is, but I, I try to bring more to the uh, the freedom hut than just you know the the alt left media is terrible i hate i hate the uh the progressive echo chamber the main the, the mainstream lamestream media etc cetera, etc cetera. that's that's all well and good but there are other things to uh, keep in mind to think about beyond that um that all said i will get into some cnn i will get into some cnn bashing later because i mean come on right we are we are doing radio here uh, but Russia, I know I skipped over. Let, let me let me put a quick hold here. I'll come back, talk to you about Putin, Russia, where I think the conversation should go, where the areas are of common concern, and where there will be some friction, and, of course, how the media will treat this whole showdown with Trump and Putin. We'll hit that and much more, team, right after this break. We urge Russia to cease its destabilizing activities in Ukraine and elsewhere and its support for hostile regimes, including Syria and Iran, and to instead join the community of responsible nations in our fight against common enemies and in defense of civilization itself. I have to say, uh, I don't see where Trump, as the, the stooge of Russia, is is a defensible position at all for the media and for the uh, anal analysts out there to take. But nonetheless, you will hear it from people, right? There, there's nothing, there's no evidence, just kind of like the whole Russia-Trump collusion thing, there's no evidence really to support it. There's been no... Uh, policy taken by the administration that is strangely or unusually favorable toward Russia or toward Vladimir Putin. And in fact, the speech President Trump gave today in Warsaw, he called out Russia. And by the way, for the Polish, uh, Russia is a very real concern. Uh, the, the, the Polish can look back in their own history and, well, I should say that there's, first of all, among my Polish friends, there's a bit of a... Uh, of a distaste for the Russian state's actions vis-a-vis -vis Poland stretching back for a long time. And uh, there's friction between uh, Poles and Russians that I've I've been uh, told about on, on more than one occasion. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the president gave a, an excellent speech in Warsaw, which he called out Russia. And now we know that at the G20 summit, we'll be talking to you more about uh, at the G20 summit, you have uh, Vladimir Putin sitting down with President Trump. 
And you're already there's already a whole bunch of media coverage around this thing, and people are saying, "Oh well, we will have to see." You know, why isn't Trump taking a top? This is from the Washington Examiner. President Trump's top White House expert on Russia won't attend his meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Trump and Putin will be joined only by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, as well as translators. Well, you know, they 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 want to have a they want to have a, a man-to-man, you know? They want it to go mano-a-mano here. Well, I guess it's two men to two men plus translators, but you know what I'm saying. I want this to be a direct line of communication. I should also note that if I'm this White House at this point in time, or rather if I'm this president, uh, you, you got to think that any discussion that he has, if there are other people in the room, there's always the possibility that just somehow there'll be a story in the media that maybe distorts what was said or distorts uh, his approach to Putin. You, you know, it's not going to be there's not going to run a lot of news stories about the brilliant statecraft uh, that is that is engaged in by Trump in a meeting with Putin. And yet somehow they're saying, oh, well, he's not bringing his top expert. I think he's going to be taking the measure of this uh, Vladimir Putin fellow and vice versa. And Rex Tillerson and Sergey Lavrov is also going to be a very uh, interesting uh, uh, man-to-man exchange, I would assume. Now, look, they're going to be doing this through translators, so that also takes something out of this. I- I'm surprised that there's not—well, I shouldn't say that necessarily, but you would think that Putin would have uh, English fluency. I just figure, you know, if, if you're going to be the head of state of a major country like that and, and you're going to have— uh, interactions with the Western regular base. I'm sure Putin speaks English, but my understanding is he, he doesn't really, his English is not, not so great. It's just, I'm just saying it's kind of surprising that Putin's English is not better than it is from, from what I understand based on the media reports. Anyway, um, I think that they're going to discuss a whole range of issues. The main place where you could see some real positive effects uh, when it comes to Russia has to do with foreign policy, which I will note is always overstated in the minds of the media when it comes to importance. Foreign policy sounds fancy. Foreign policy is generally the province of elite coastal and even northeastern, sorry, California, northeastern uh, types, you know, the the Atlantic seaboard and all of the various uh, hallowed institutions of higher learning that churn out all these self-described wonks on foreign policy. And it's a, it's a place where there's always a, a separation from the hoi polloi. You know, did you study foreign policy? Have you traveled extensively around the globe? What are the stamps in your passport? You know, there, there's a little bit of a of a latent classism in the way the media talks about foreign policy. I'm sure a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. When, whenever we go into the realm of foreign policy, it's supposed to be you know, let's let the adults, the smart, the we'll let the let the smartest people in the room handle this one. And so that's where, for example, there was a wild overestimation of the Obama administrations and, yes, President Obama himself, uh, of their capabilities on foreign policy and their strategy, their wisdom, their judgment, right? Because they're, they're so smart, right? Obama and his top advisors are just so brilliant. They must be great at foreign policy. They went to fancy schools, so they must know exactly what they're doing. Of course, you know, Trump went to a fancy school, too, but you, you don't really, you know, the media doesn't really care about that. Uh, Notice that with Trump, the fancy school means nothing. But how many times did we hear about how Obama went to Harvard Law School and was on Harvard Law Review? You heard about it a lot, didn't you? But Trump went to Wharton, which is the best business school in the world, and everyone's kind of like, meh. You know, I I just think we should be 
I just think we should be fair about this, right? If the commander-in-chief, and people said, oh, well, look at George Bush, and he went to Yale, but it's because he's a Bush. Yeah, well, you know, John Kerry wasn't exactly lighting the world on fire as a student when he was at uh, Yale. So, you know, uh, neither was Al Gore. I don't know if he went to, I think he went to Harvard and not Yale. I get it all confused. These schools are all, by the way, this is a total digression from the Russia, Russia thing, which I'll get back to in a second. But I just, I really want to tell you this because I have firsthand experience of dealing with this uh in a whole bunch of capacities. This whole thing about school branding is somehow indicative of someone's intelligence is just nonsense. It can be true. There are really impressive people, lots of them who go to these fancy schools, but there are a lot of idiots too. And there are a lot of brilliant people who go to schools you've never heard of. So it really doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean anymore or what people allege it to mean, especially with politicians who have connected families and everything else. Oh, what, do you think Chelsea, you think Chelsea Clinton went to Stanford because she's so brilliant? I mean, I'm sure she thinks so, but... I have news for you. Not not the case. Uh, but back to Russia. Okay, so on foreign policies where there should be the biggest uh, move here, I think, and that means notably Syria. And if there could be the, the Russian hand in Syria right now is a strong one. And we don't really know where we're trying to go as Raqqa, the fight for Raqqa is currently underway. We've got our proxy force on the ground in Syria. You know, the Russians have military forces there. They've been... Uh, they've been flying aerial sorties, dropping bombs for a long time, unfortunately dropping bombs far too indiscriminately and killing a lot of civilians in the process and not really fighting against ISIS, but fighting against the anti-ISIS, anti-Assad resistance. Um, r- we need we need Russia to, to play ball a little more on Syria with whatever our end state goal is, which I should also note, I'm not even sure the administration knows what they're trying to accomplish in Syria other than destroy ISIS, but... It's not like you destroy ISIS and then you just get to go home. And it's not like destroying ISIS is going to happen anytime soon. We're going to move into a counterinsurgency phase. The Russians can either be somewhat constructive in this process or at least not be destructive, or they can make our lives much more miserable. So I'm sure they're going to talk about that. We'll be right back. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome back, everyone. Let's talk some national security now with Fred Flights. He is Senior Vice President at the Center for Security Policy. He's a former CIA analyst and former Chief of Staff to Ambassador John Bolton. My brother from Langley, Mr. Fred Flights, great to have you, sir. Well, it is great to talk to a fellow former CIA officer. Indeed. Uh, so let, let's get into what's happening around the world. First, G20 summit. Why should why should people care? What's being discussed? What matters? Well, I mean, I've been looking at this all day. It's been fascinating. I think that the president scored a major coup with his meeting in Poland to strike a strong relationship with the nation that, well, a government that shares his values. You know, the president was going to Europe knowing this was going to be a setup, that these uh, European elites were out to get him. They were going to bash him on the uh, climate agreement, on immigration, on his trade policies. So what did the president do? He got a hero's welcome in Warsaw and talked with a government that understands the dangers of letting in immigrants who are not vetted for terrorist ties. You know, there have been no radical Islamist attacks in Poland. You know why? Because they have defied the EU's orders to let in unvetted Syrian refugees. So I think this really set him up well for his meetings with the Europeans. And he also talked about a relationship with Poland and Eastern Europe. He wants to strike concerning energy and economic aid and military aid, which also has put Putin 
on the defensive. And I think that put him in a good position for those meetings also. I have to say, I saw some reaction from the press, from some of the usual suspects, uh, Fred, including folks over at CNN who are having quite a week, quite a month. Uh, and they were suggesting that that Trump is is playing right into Putin's hands because at that press conference with the Polish premier, he made some comments about the, the well, about the press and said something about Obama. And I think they're just stretching now to the point where the agenda has been obvious for a long time. Time, but now it's really just entering silly town. I mean, it's it's just crazy. Why? Give me your sense of where where Trump is vis-a-vis Putin's puppet after what we've seen over the last 24 hours. Well, I don't get my news from CNN, uh, but I will tell you the relationship with Putin is complicated. Let's bear in mind that that relationship with Russia is a mess because of the uh, uh, disaster left for Mr. Trump. By President Obama, realized that the last summit that Russia participated in on Syria, Russia, Iran, and Turkey participated. The U.S. was not invited because we lost so much credibility with the Russians <laughs> and uh, over this issue. They didn't think it was worth talking to us. Just think about that. So he has to rebuild us as a credible state. He also has to come at Putin to negotiate from a position of strength. I think the first meeting is going to be icy and difficult. They're going to have to establish a relationship where we agree to disagree on some things. We hold Russia accountable, and we find a way to cooperate on issues of mutual concern. In your entire career, Fred, uh, both inside and outside of government, do you ever recall a time when the media was anywhere near this uh, completely freaked out about everything that Russia does all the time. I mean, you really do get the sense that there are some ma- there are some major newsrooms out there, major newspapers that that think that, you know, Putin's hiding under their bed at night or something. I mean, it, it, it's like a, a Putin pandemic out there. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And look at the way the Western media wasted their questions in Warsaw. One was on the Trump wrestling with CNN video. The other one was concerning whether Russia influenced the election. Nothing about what they just heard on the U.S. relationship with Poland, giving Patriot missiles to Poland, energy assistance. The Western media is obsessed with these trivial issues while there are serious security and economic issues they should be asking about. We're speaking to Fred Flights. He's senior vice president at the Center for Security Policy, former CIA analyst. Uh, Fred, what does success vis-a-vis foreign policy with Moscow. What does uh, does Trump doing the right thing and, and getting it done when it comes to Putin and the various places where our interests either clash, intersect, or actually uh, go, go along with each other, what does success look like? If we could get some type of agreement on ISIS, that would be a significant achievement. Uh, If we could find some way to get cooperation with Russia and North Korea, that would be significant. I think that's very unlikely, I might add. I think the most we can probably hope for is beginning a relationship that they will develop over the next couple of years so we'll be able to come to some agreements in the future. I think this initial meeting is basically the two leaders feeling each other out. I don't think there will be any significant achievements. 
And you mentioned North Korea. Obviously, the missile test has got a lot of uh, a lot of attention from around the world, which is in at least in large part, I think, the, the part of the or part of the reason for the uh, the missile test in the first place. Right, is to get the world's attention. Uh, the Kim regime uses this as a means of getting everyone to all of a sudden take notice uh, to what's going on in, in North Korea. Uh, although there is a, a real military threat and, and a growing military threat as a result of the increasing capability. Dealing with North Korea, a lot of people are talking about it last couple of days. I'm not hearing a lot of new policy or strategy, uh, Fred. I'm, I'm hearing better versions of what has been tried and, quite honestly, hasn't worked all that well. W- what does need to be done here? What should the Trump administration's approach to North Korea be? Well, i first like to say I really was pleased to discuss this with you at Fox and Friends recently. I thought your comments were excellent. Thank you. Um, you know, if we're six months into the administration. This is a complicated issue, and Trump has not said what he's going to do. I think that's the right approach. I am. I hate to say I think conflict with North Korea is coming, military conflict, unless the U.S. takes some fairly aggressive steps. And I've recommended that we implement sanctions that China and Russia have been blocking for almost 25 years. That is, stopping and searching North Korean ships at sea to uh, search for nuclear and missile parts as well as drugs and counterfeit currency, uh, cutting off North Korea's access to the international financial system, shooting down North Korean missiles, and increasing our nuclear deterrent in the region as well as missile defenses. These, these steps would not just put pressure on North Korea. They will create a situation that China just hates. And frankly, the status quo is too comfortable for China. I think we had to put pressure on them to pressure North Korea. Now, I thought it was interesting. You mentioned Russia before and, and North Korea. Of course, the G20 summit happening right now. North Korea is a topic of discussion in the news. I'm sure all of the various world leaders gathered are also going to be discussing the North Korean threat, the growing uh, problem that is posed uh, by the Kim regime there. What's Russia's game when it comes to North Korea? What, what do you, Putin views this as a way to complicate matters for us, bog us down, keep us focused on China, not him. What, what do you see as Putin's play when it comes to North Korea? Russia is trying to cause problems for the United States and give some aid to North Korea. They cut off most of their aid after the fall of the Soviet Union. China's relationship is much more serious. About 80 to 90 percent of North Korean trade is with China. This is a substantial amount of economic aid. China's worried about North Korea falling, which would cause refugees to flow north and instability in the region. Um, They have different reasons for supporting North Korea. I think Russia's is basically to be mischievous and undermine us. Uh, China, there are more strategic interests. Yeah, and putting full pressure on China, in your opinion, means what when it comes to getting them to, to play ball on North Korea? It's difficult because they don't want to play ball on North Korea, and they there's actually Chinese trade with North Korea increased by 37 percent in the first quarter of 2017. I think we have to create an economic, political, and military situation that makes the Chinese so uncomfortable they will actually press North Korea to change its ways, maybe by substantially withholding aid. That situation doesn't, doesn't exist right now, but I think there are ways we can do that. Fred Flights is Senior Vice President at the Center for Security Policy. You can follow him on Twitter at Fred Flights, F-L-E-I-T-Z. My brother from Langley, Mr. Flights, great to have you back on, sir, and uh, hope you come back soon. Good to be here, Buck. Team, we're going to hit a quick break. We'll be back in just a few. Stay with me. 
welcome to hell protest. Uh, it's currently going on in Hamburg. Here's some of the uh, the audio of what's going on there as 100,000 protesters uh, uh, protesters have descended on Hamburg uh, to, I don't know, express their displeasure with capitalism, apparently. I don't know what they're, you know, capi- capitalism is kaput. I don't, I don't really know what they're yelling. I, I'm, I, don't, yeah, I actually took some German. I'm ashamed to say I remember very little of it. But, you know, it's very helpful for doing the accent. So it's like they have all these uh, people from all across of Europe and they're getting together and they're like, oh, well, we don't like the capitalism. I mean, we all came here in, like, very fancy vehicles, and we like the uh, $3,000 laptop computers. But, you know, capitalism is very evil. I don't like it. Uh, it's not circuit. So, yeah, they're, I mean, look, I, I know a lot of the protesters probably are in German. I don't know. They're coming from all over. I mean, well, I mean, most of them, I'm guessing, are German. I don't know. They're coming from all over Europe. And... I'm sure you're going to have some element of black block. Well, you have had some element of black block because there have been there's been fires and they got police bringing out the water cannons and all all kinds of crazy is happening uh, right now. And you have uh, the possibility of uh, a Porsche dealership with uh, that was torched. It looks like that was some anti-capitalist protest. I mean. To light brand new Porsches on fire. I mean, it's just, it's like defacing a work of art. I don't know what, what is wrong with these uh, these uh, leftist loons, but this is what they're doing. Uh, you got uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel. Hello, guten tag, world. I'm leading the G20. It's going to be fantastic. You got Angela Merkel uh, getting together with people, uh, getting together with these world leaders, um, and they're going to be talking about trade and climate change. So I guess that's that's what really brings out the crazies. Uh, the moment you're talking about about issues of economics and and climate change, of course, you're going to have these uh, really these zealots who think that they're making some kind of a critical political point by acting like uh, total maniacs and clashing with police. And there, there'll be all these videos of this and. You know, because they want to protest the G20. I mean, just as by way of background, because people will be talking about the G20. And I know it's one of these things where everyone's like, yeah, you know, hey, you know, the, the G20, it's a thing. But just so we are all on the same page here. And I've been reading about it today. And there's stuff that I was learning about I want to share with you. The G20 is the group of 20. So it's uh, 20 different countries. That are leading countries in terms of their industrialized and uh, industrialized economies. Between these twenty countries, they account for eighty-five percent of the world's GDP. So keep in mind, there, there are over two hundred countries, or roughly two hundred countries in the world, and eighty-five percent of the world's gross domestic product comes from these twenty countries, and two-thirds of the world's population come from these 20 countries. You know, p- part of the problem of, for example, like the United Nations and and the models of international governance that are foisted on us by the global uh, cosmopolitanists who tend to be over-represented in the ranks of the uh, elites, both in media, academia, and politics in this country, as well as in Europe. The p- part of the problem is that their model of global leadership tends to treat... 
Micronesia as needing a somewhat similar say to, well, maybe not necessarily China and the countries that are on the U.N. Security Council and such, but, you know, other countries that are like big countries with lots of folks and bigger problems or different problems and that affect other countries around them in a way that, I mean, no offense, Micronesia, but, you know, it's it's not a, not a big place. Um, if I do recall, though, it was a part of the Coalition of the Willing. I think Micronesia back in the uh, Bush era was one of the 40-some-odd countries that was part of the Coalition of the Willing. I, I could be wrong on that, but I think it was, if you were to check that out. Side note, fun fun factoid, a little, little bit of trivia for you. Uh, so where were we here? Oh, yes, the G20. So the G20 is going on in Hamburg for the next couple of days. Hamburg, which, as you might have already guessed, is where we get the term hamburger. Yeah. Uh, like also Frankfurt, which gave us the Frankfurter, which we now call a hot dog. But if you want to be fancy, you call it a Frankfurter. Uh, so hamburger, Frankfurter, but also you don't want to say ich bin ein Berliner because a Berliner is in. We're saying ein Berliner rather is a, is a pastry. So JFK was was saying you know I'm a pastry, but really what he meant to say is ich bin Berliner would be I'm I'm a person from Berlin. Ich bin ein Berliner is like. It would be like uh, saying, you know, I'm a, if you're from Frankfurt, you know, I'm a Frankfurter, like the thing that people eat. Uh, again, do you need to know that? Well, maybe you do. Fun stuff. G20 leaders or your G20 countries. I just want to run through so you get a sense of what's going on. And then we'll talk more about the crazy anti-capitalist stuff that's going on there. Because you see this. It's like the WTO protest that happened uh, years ago in Seattle. They're kicking in windows and you get all these guys in uh, Black Block. Remember, Black Block is a protest tactic uh, favored by those on the far left, but it started in Germany, in fact. The Schwarzer Block. Yeah. It started in Germany in the 1970s, and it had to do with anti-nuclear protests, and that's when you would be—but it became more, much more uh, well-known and popular after the WTO Seattle protests, and I think it was 1999, because there was video of that, and I mean, the streets of Seattle looked like— you know, looked like uh, a bad day in, in, in Baghdad or Mogadishu. I mean, it was really— uh, a lot of destruction and tear gas and all kinds of stuff going on. But so the G20 countries, before I get back into the protests here, you got Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, France, Germany, India, Indonesia, Italy, Japan, Mexico, Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Korea, Turkey, the UK, the US of A, China, South Africa. And wait, am I missing one? Oh, the European Union. Eh, bep, 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 the European Union which is uh, represented by the European Commission. So that's the G20. And, uh, you know, they, they talk about some economic stuff. I think there are, there are bankers that are present, too. This is different from the G8, for those of you who really want to get down in the weeds here. I know you're like, Buck, really? Yeah, really, the G8, which started back in 1976. Uh, it was originally the G7, but then we added Russia. Thank you, comrade. Very decent of you. But then we kicked Russia out. What? Why did you kick us out? That's so mean. Uh, we kicked them out. Well, not kicked them out, but we uh, suspended their membership in 2014 because of their annexation of Crimea. So it's the G it was the G7. It became the G8 because we added Russia into it. But those are like the those are like the big the, uh, the 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 big dogs on the international scene: Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Russia, the UK, and the United States. And then uh, and then you know Russia. 
Russia will be back in, I'm sure, at some point. So that's why uh, that's what this is. I mean, it's it's really just a, a consortium. The G20 is a consortium of different countries come together and uh, have senior leaders discussing uh, economic issues, trade issues predominantly, and I'm sure they'll be talking about climate change too, which would be interesting to be a fly in the wall for some of those discussions with the Trump administration. You know, what what climate change? What who says who? What climate change? Uh, I don't think they're going to be getting very far on that, but there'll be some other issues where I think there'll be discussions. But all right. So back to the the anti-capitalist protest, though. I just don't understand the mentality of these are all it's young people that do this stuff. Right. I mean, people who have lived past the age of 35 tend not to want to catch a tear gas canister in the forehead. Right. I mean, that's there's not much excitement. It's like me now when I go out drinking for one night and not that I go out drinking heavily, but if I go out and and socialize the next day, I'm just I, I, I there's no rebounding anymore. Right. I'm just I'm out like I got to sleep and take it easy. Yeah, I think you reach a certain point where you're like tear gas. Not not really my thing. So it tends to be uh, people who are really in their 20s and into their uh, early 30s, I suppose. And they're protesting capitalism. And I, I just I, I kind of want to ask them. It'd be interesting to sit down and have a discussion with these protesters who are lighting cars on fire, breaking windows, acting like uh, maniacs in general. What exactly do you think you're doing here? Like, what is the what is the purpose of all this? Well, what's the mentality behind this? You, you think you're going to get what concession out of these G20 countries that there will be more action on on climate change? What would that even look like? What is the, the, the purpose of a, of a mass protest movement like this? Remember, they're calling it the welcome to hell protest. The cops are worried that thousands of these protesters will turn violent. And they're just described as anti-capitalist protesters. It's like, what, what What does that even mean? I mean, I know we have them in America, too, and I remember they're from Occupy Wall Street, but I think they just want to throw a tantrum and tell stories. We'll be back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. I am not entertained! The buck is back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hunt, everyone. Our friend Matt Walsh is on the line. He has a new book out, The Unholy Trinity, Blocking the Left's Assault on Life, Marriage, and Gender. And he's an author at The Blaze. Mr. Walsh, great to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me, Buck. Uh, So I talked to uh, the folks listening last week about the very distressing Charlie Gard case. I know you've written about this at TheBlaze.com. I I wanted to hear your take on, on what we should take away from all this, what this tells us about the state, its decisions, and the culture surrounding, uh, our, well, the culture surrounding this decision in the U.K. and here at home. Well, I mean, it tells us, it tells us so much, I mean, much more than we, than, we, uh, than we want to face or know. But it's, you know, what, what, this, what this case comes down to for me, anyway, is, you know, a question of, uh, well, I guess there are two questions. Is, is, it's, it, there's a question of the sanctity of human life. Is, is all life sacred? Which, of course, it is. And then the second question is, uh, is you know, who should be in charge at the end of the day of medical decisions? Who, who should have the say about uh, what treatments are given? Should it be the patient or the patient's parents, if the patient is a child? Or should it be a state? You know, a combination of a state and the hospital and some sort of board of people that they get together and they have their formulas and they work everything out. You know, which which party concerned should be the one making decisions, 
And uh, when you, and obviously in a single payer socialist healthcare system, you're going to cede that power to the state. And so we see here what happens. And we could say all we want this is like a, like a worst case scenario type of thing. And it is a terrible scenario, but it's not, it's not really worst case. I mean, this is, or at least in, in a sense that this isn't some rare kind of strange thing that's going on. This is, not a, this is a feature, not a bug of socialized medicine, where the state comes in and says, look, it's just not worth the resources to, quote, unquote, waste on this child that's probably going to die anyway. That's one of the reasons why socialized medicine exists, to make decisions like this so that we could be more efficient. And uh, it, it truly is just horrifying. It seems to me that's one of the, the fundamental fallacies that uh, has taken root in this country around the idea of single payer, which, as you know, Matt, is, is gaining steam on the on the left these days. Bernie Sanders was open about it during the presidential primary. But there are still a lot of people that are saying, look, they Republicans can't fix Obamacare. Let's go to single payer. There is this belief and it, it's a it really is a, a socialist redistributionist inclination that the state will do a better job of distributing scarce resources, in this case, health care and sometimes life-saving resources, than the market will. Now, neither one of them is perfect, but I think we have ample evidence, uh, including what's going on in the U.K., to show that the state is a much worse—you are in much worse hands when the state is making decisions about scarce resources when it comes to health care, or I should say not infinite resources when it comes to health care, than when individuals, at least, can be the drivers behind those choices. Yeah, and if I and and you're right, it's not perfect either way. You can complain about the insurance companies all you want because if we're talking about a free market system, that means that the insurance companies make a lot of these decisions. And so you could say that you, you end up with similar situations where the insurance company says we're not going to cover this, we're not going to cover this treatment. But there's a difference now. If I have to choose between having the big bad insurance companies uh, basically running the insurance, the the healthcare system, which is what happens in free market inevitably, or having the state doing it. I'm going to go with the with the with the uh, with the insurance companies, and the reason for that is really simple. It's because the insurance companies don't have uh, militaries, they don't have police, they don't make laws, they can't they can't tell me what to do. So all the all the insurance company can do, and if this was if, this, if there was an insurance company in charge of the Charlie the Charlie Guard case, all they could have done is said we're not going to cover that. But what they can't do is what the what the you know European quote unquote human rights court did in this case, which is say. Not only are we not going to cover it, but you're not allowed to have anyone cover it. You can't even cover it yourself. You, you have a million and a half dollars donated to you. You can't even use that and go to a different country and have it covered. You can't do it. So that's what the, the state has the power to do that. Insurance companies don't. All they can do is say, we're, we don't want to be involved in this treatment, but if you can find someone else to do it, uh, God bless you. So, I, yeah, if I have to choose between the two, I'm going to go with that one because I think that that's, you know, there are, there are some downsides to it, but not nearly as many uh, downsides. We're speaking to Matt Walsh. His uh, new book is out. It's The Unholy Trinity, and he is an author at The Blaze. Uh, Matt, did, did you by chance see—I'm going to be talking more about transgender, uh, transgenderism and the, the state of uh, ID when it comes to transgenderism and also uh, now pediatric, uh, pediatric care for, for prepubescent uh, self-identified transgender kids, which is just—it's insane, it's abusive, and, and I can't believe we're already there. But did you see the, uh, the trans activist over the weekend who was writing something about how uh, attraction to trans—either uh, that, that for a heterosexual male to be attracted to a trans uh, female, meaning a man that believes or a man that believes, is a heterosexual thing— 
No, it's not. And this seems to be now yet another incidence of reality does not matter, that, that transgender rights transcends rationality. Yeah, I did see that. And unfortunately, I got into a, a pretty useless back and forth. Oh, I didn't know that. You went back and forth on Twitter. Tell How did that go? Um, well, I mean, this is, look, this is a delusional person. This is a, a person who's a man dressed up like a woman, thinks he's a woman. And his point, and, and he's not the only one saying this. I mean, this is becoming more and more popular. That if you're heterosexual and you are and you have ruled out the possibility of having sexual relations with a quote unquote trans woman, which is a man that thinks he's a woman, if you rule out that possibility and you refuse to, you know, be romantically involved with, you know, someone that has your same sexual organs, then that makes you a bigot, you know, and you need to, as he put it, you have to work through that. You got to work through that bigotry. And it's so, I mean, it's of course ridiculous, but the, 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 what I said to him, the immediate response is, well, would you say that to gay people? I, I thought we're not allowed to say that. Would you say to gay people, hey, look, if, you, if you've ruled out the possibility of having sexual relations with a woman, then you've got to work through that. You've got you to figure that out because that's not okay. That's sexist. Well, no, we would never say that to a gay person because we've always – I thought we've always – what we've accepted as doctrine is that sexual orientation is, uh, is ingrained and everything, and it can't be changed, and you have to embrace it. But – even that, which we thought that we thought that that idea of sexual orientation being this ingrained genetic thing, we thought that that was doctrine on the left. But apparently, even that doctrine can be upended for the sake of, uh, you know, transgender rights. Where now we're even being told that, you know, it's, it's not it's not enough to accept transgenderism or tolerate it. Now, as a man, you actually you actually have to be open to dating these people because if you won't go that far, then you're still a bigot. I mean, like, yeah, I, I saw a poll that said something like only 20 percent of men would, would consider dating a transgender woman. And it was supposed to be evidence of like lingering bigotry. And I'm like, no, no, that's just men who only want to date women. That's called heterosexual. I don't, I don't understand why this is con- this is not complicated. And that's and, I'm, and I saw that same poll and I was actually I was shocked and disturbed that it was that high. I mean, tw- yeah, it was something like 20, 20, really? I mean, almost 20% of men would be open. Yeah, actually, I agree like, with you. I, I'm surprised, too. This is the wor- I mean, you look, look, you do that poll 20 years ago, and, and the percentage will be like 0.001%. So, I mean, really, that's the thing. So they've all, even with that number, and they, they frame it as a bad thing, but they've gained a lot of ground there. I mean, that's really a, actually it's kind of a staggering number that that many men would be open to that. Uh, but it's still not enough, and this is what we find on the left across the board. It's the same story over and over again that they, uh, you know, it's never enough to accept. It's never enough enough to tolerate. You have to celebrate, and even there, it's ne- even that isn't enough. Like it's got to be. It has to be everyone. Like it's not. It's not even okay if it's most people. Everybody in the country has to be celebrating what they're doing. Every last person. And if not, if every last person is not, then... Yeah, I always say, Matt, it starts... I've said it before, I'll say it again. It starts with they request uh, tolerance and then acceptance and then celebration and then obedience. That, That is the full arc. At the end of it, it's not even just, oh, it's great that you're trans. It has to be, it's great that you're transgender, and I'll use the pronoun they, which is plural, for you as an individual because you demand it with the force of the state behind you, which is, I think, what's coming when it comes to all this transgender stuff. They're, they're going to use the force of the state. We already see it in Canada. Yeah, well, it's, it's yeah, the next step is that, yeah, I'll, I'll call you the front end you want. And then the next step after that is, oh, can we go out on a date? Like, that's like, you, you have to, that's going to be the final step. Is it? I don't know if they're going to get to a point where they can enforce that by, by the state will come up with laws, like a certain quota of trans people you have to date if you're single. I don't know. I mean, who knows? You know, fast forward 50 years, maybe we'll get to that point. It is, uh, it's just, it's, this is why we, you know, we say it over and over again. But this is why, as people on the right, when we're dealing with the left, it's uh, 
you can't or, you know, forget about yeah, it devolves into irrationality. It's it's self-contradicting. Right. They don't even need us to contradict them. And you and when you when you have this, when you're standing for the truth and you have the truth on your side, you cannot compromise at all. You can't give up any ground at all because if you give up any ground, then it's not going to be enough, and they're going to want more and more. So you just have to stand your ground on, on all this stuff, whatever it is. You just if you have the truth and you know you're right, and on something like this, like men are men, women are women, that's the truth. Period. End of discussion. And you stand by that truth, and you compromise not at all, because the moment you start compromising, then it's it's just uh, you go sliding down the you go sliding down the slope. Yeah, we well, we get to where this country's already, which is pretty far down the slope. Matt Walsh, everybody, author at the Blaze. Check out his book, The Unholy Trinity: Blocking the Left's Assault on Life, Marriage, and Gender. Matt, always appreciate you making the time. Come back soon. Hey, thanks a lot, Buck. Uh, team, we are going to hit a break. We'll be right back. to do much talking on the show about a, a self-described activist uh, who is very anti-Israel and uh, subscribes to the inflammatory leftist school of politics. Um, but Linda Sarsour, uh, we should probably invite her on the show sometime, see if she'd come on. That'd be kind of a fun, a fun exchange. Uh, I'm thinking about doing more of that, by the way, inviting on leftists to uh, defend their uh, incredibly uh, crappy and uh, unprincipled and just generally bad positions, but it's tough to get them to come on, especially on a radio show. There's no hiding on radio, really. It's not like TV where there's shiny objects, so to speak, to distract people and, oh, no, 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 wait, wait, I'm going to call for a clip here. Hold on. You're, you're beating my arguments, so and now the host is going to call for a clip. Or, oh, I, we have to go into a break here because of the network or whatever. No, on radio you got time to make the arguments, and it's just the arguments, right? It's not the, uh, the theatricality of the visual is taken out of the equation, and so... It becomes just argument and counter-argument. So leftists, this is also why I think, by the way, uh, the leftists tend to do badly on radio as a medium. They just don't succeed. Um, anyway, Linda Sarsour, she was uh, speaking at a uh, an event over the weekend, I think it was. And just so you know who this person is, she's the uh, co-chair of the woman's march that happened recently, which is, of course, anti-Trump, right? All these different marches are anti-Trump. Say what you will about Trump, but he certainly has plenty of... He's gotten all the right people upset at him, that's for sure. Um, But he... uh, But she, I should say, pardon me, uh, Linda Sarsour said that uh, resisting Donald Trump is a, quote, form of jihad. I think we should actually hear Ms. Sarsour here in her own words. Do not criticize me when I say that we as a Muslim community in these United States of America have to be perpetually outraged every single day. When I wake up in the morning and I remember who's sitting in the White House, I am outraged. And I hope that we, when we stand up to those who oppress our communities, that Allah accepts from us that as a form of jihad, that we are struggling against tyrants and rulers, not only abroad, but here in these United States of America where you have fascists and white supremacists and Islamophobes reigning in the White House. Our number one and top priority is to protect and defend our communities. It is not to assimilate and to please any other people in authority, but even higher than all those priorities is to please Allah and only Allah. Okay, a lot, a lot to work through 
there. Uh, because I, I think that Mr. Arsour, who has a, not that Twitter is the be-all, end-all, I mean, I increasingly find myself wishing that I could just not have to ever tweet anything. Uh, but she has like 200 and some odd thousand followers on Twitter. She was the co-chair of the anti-Trump march, and she was speaking there at the Islamic Society of North America's 54th annual convention over the weekend. Uh, so she was, uh, I believe she, yes, she was uh, the keynote speaker, um, the keynote speaker at this, at least at this part of the event. And she is very uh, anti-Israel, as just an aside, but also obviously has her problems with this administration. A few notable points she makes here. One, she says that uh, the Muslim community in this country should be perpetually outraged. So uh, at least she's coming out here and and saying it, uh, saying that there should just be perpetual outrage at this White House. You'd think that a more reasonable position would be, well, let's see what the White House does uh, where's the outrage she mentioned earlier on i i actually listened to a longer excerpt of of the speech that the you know, muslim ban one muslim ban two and then muslim ban three they're not muslim bans calling them that is inaccurate and i still think i have a much better um you know a vetting upgrade uh, is, is a much a travel vetting upgrade is a much better way to describe it than a travel ban i don't know what this has not yet caught on much to my chagrin but that that would be a better a better description of all this um but she says they should be perpetually outraged which is not a that's not a healthy place for anyone or any community to be in perpetual outrage but it's really a dominant theme on the left they they are perpetually outraged never mind just uh, leftist muslim activists in this country but just in in general you have perpetual outrage i mean the the whole media ecosystem right now left and i will admit on much of the right it's just rawr, rawr, outrage outrage angry angry it's just it's tiresome and you know it's also just it's just intellectually lazy to always be so outraged oh i'm so angry about this i'm angry about that uh, surprised at how little th- I, I, surprised at how the market doesn't seem to be particularly rewarding uh thoughtful or insightful and is increasingly rewarding in media loud and angry uh, on both sides of the aisle, but particularly on the left these days because of Trump. It's just overwhelming. Um, notice also the way that she, I, I thought this was, this just stuck out to me. She has, the way that she speaks, it's the, the cadence of a demagogue, right? It's just the uh, speaking rapidly. So you have the, uh, the the immediate perception of the audience is somehow eloquence because she's speaking very quickly and and terms kind of, uh, she either uses alliteration or even some rhymes and uh, bringing, you know, bringing together our communities against Trump. We have the need to disintegrate the nonsensical reiteration of the Muslim ban and the the, the, the cadence is, um, you know, the, the cadence is... Uh, is interesting to me. It just the, the way that she speaks to me. It, it reminds me. A lot of these activists have a similar, uh, a similar method, a similar method of getting their uh, their points across, uh, which I just I know. I, I think it's just a stylistic thing, maybe on the left. Um, uh, so, anyway, and then uh, we have a few other. What was it? Uh, oh yeah, fascists and white supremacists in the White House. Um, fascists and white supremacists in the White House. Uh, that, that's 
a smear. Uh, I don't know why we are supposed to take anyone seriously who refers to white supremacists in the White House, but yet here we are. This has become, uh, you know, commonplace. Um, you know, this has become a uh, this has become something that you'll hear from many people on the left that there are white supremacists in the White House, that there are fascists in the White House. Uh, I don't know what to say other than I think this is immediately disqualifying for anyone who's a public person to make such outrageous claims. But there they are. And then at the end, interesting, she said we are not to not to assimilate, not to assimilate. Um, You know, that's an interesting position to take, I would think. Anyway, um, so that's Linda Sarsour for you, everybody. We'll get more into that later on. And uh, I'll be following what she's up to uh, in the media. And we'll talk about CNN coming up. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. All right, Team Buck, we got some calls coming in here. Robert in Wisconsin, listening on the iHeart app. What is up, sir? Shield time, Buck. How are you today? Shield time, man. I'm, I'm good. I'm good, thank you. How about yourself? I'm great, thank you. I wanted to say that... Um, Firstly, for the first last seven years, I've lived in Romania, and, and your show was a bright spot. Uh, although I'd have to get up at six in the morning to download it, but you're, uh, I love your, you love your commentary. You bring on different people to discuss different topics, and it's an awesome show. Thank you so much, man. I really do appreciate that. Good. Um, secondly, I wanted to bring up uh, Trump's speech in Poland, which I just recently watched, and I thought that it was awesome and. In relation to the Balkan region, as far as those countries go, you know, it's it's something I think Americans have lost track of as far as their independence, their democracy and things, the socialized health care. Uh, it's nice to see those regions and those people who have been, uh, I guess, repressed for so many years, especially Romania with Ceausescu and Poland with its Russia, that they, 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 they are hungry for that democracy. And it's awesome. Yeah, well, Eastern Europe is a is a place that has a particularly pro-American attitude because when we talk about freedom and liberty and individual rights and property rights and free markets, that's a new thing for Eastern Europe. And and they see what it does and they want more of it. And because they've understood the alternative, because they had to live it under the Soviet Union, I think that they have a particular uh, a, a particular excitement and and quite honestly a particular uh, fondness for America and what it stands for. And you saw that today. I mean, the, the crowds in Poland were cheering President Trump's name. They, it was He had to stop a few times because the crowd was so excited that he was there. And it's just, it, it you know, kind of gives you goosebumps in it. To, I, I'm, I'm, I have communities here in the U.S., uh, Romanian and Polish communities, and they are just good, hardworking people. And I'm not to diminish Americans because I am. I just recently moved back. But it's it's neat to see, uh, I guess, a pride coming back to everybody here, too. So thank you, Buck. Uh, absolutely, Robert. Thank you. Shields high. Uh, I should note, I didn't get into this really before, uh, but I, I do want to take a moment to, to say that obviously not everybody was happy with Trump's speech. Uh, I, the stuff that you read from, I mean, the left is just amazing sometimes. Uh, they are really, they're incredible. Uh, he, here's what here's what we got. Um, first of all, you have a, a piece. I, I thought maybe this was a parody at first. You got to be careful because Vox 
it's hard to know the difference with Vox, which is a leftist website, uh, between a, a parody of progressivism and what they actually write. You know, and there's some really funny Vox parody stuff out there. I mean, the, the difference between a Vox headline and what you'll find on The Onion sometimes is is infinitesimal. It is very, very small. Uh, but you got a, a, few, a few things. First of all, um, Vox writes uh, uh, today in response to Trump's speech, quote, Trump's speech in Poland sounded like an alt-right manifesto. Uh, what is that? An alt-right manifesto? H- how so? By the way, the subheading of this of this piece that's meant to uh, really pan Trump's speech and meant to really uh, just... Just say that it's it's a, was a bad garbage speech. Um, the subheading is quote for family, for freedom, for country, and for God. Now you put these two things together. Trump's speech in Poland sounded like an alt right manifesto for family, for freedom, for country, and for God. Uh, so are, are we to take away from this that the left believes that those things—family, freedom, country, God. Those are those are alt right things. I mean, I know that's an exaggeration, and you know, I love when when uh, the occasional imbecile on the left who listens to the show will take like one line of what I say, even if the next line is, well, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but I'm making a point. And they say, oh, you said this. I'll send me some email. I'm just like, what is? Do people enjoy being stupid sometimes? I don't understand. But anyway, I digress. Trump's speech sound like an alt-right manifesto for family, freedom, country, and God. Pardon me for borrowing the phrase, uh, but this is how you get Trump. This is why Trump won. When you have websites with—Vox uh, is huge. They've raised so much money. And, you know, the difference between Vox and the Huffington Post is, you know, I don't know. One of them was started by a woman who's like, Darling, the Democrats and the Republicans are not uh, the— not coming together because the left is really about all of the progressive values. You know, Huffington and, I don't know, Vox has got Ezra Klein. I don't have a good Ezra Klein impersonation, but it would it would not be a particularly dynamic and, and uh, humorous impersonation. Uh, but you got this website that's saying that Trump's speech was alt-right, and it, it sounded like an alt-right manifesto. And you go back, you listen to it, or, or you read the transcript, and you'll say to yourself, wow, um... So talking about America as a defender of Western civilization, Western civilization itself as a concept is now on the left uh, dubious. Uh, This is a problem. And for further evidence of this, I go to Mr. Peter Beinert, whom I actually know from uh, from my time at CNN and and did some panels and discussions uh, in which he was involved uh, and he tends to get very uh, energized and uh, and uh, aggravated w- with me when we talk foreign policy. But maybe I'll have to run those clips another day on the show. It'll be kind of fun. But he wrote in his piece for The Atlantic, uh, which is one of those seemingly fancy left-wing publications, uh, quote, In his speech in Poland, Donald Trump referred ten times to the West and five times to our civilization— His white nationalist supporters will understand exactly what he means. It's important that other Americans do, too. The West is not a geographic term. Poland is further east than Morocco. France is further east than Haiti. Australia is further east than Egypt. Yet Poland, France, and Australia are all considered parts of the West. Morocco, Haiti, and Egypt are not. The West is not an ideological or economic term either, 
India is the world's largest democracy. Japan is among its most economically advanced nations. No one considers them part of the West. I would actually, by the way, disagree with him that Japan is not considered to be uh, at least ideologically aligned with the West and is one of our closest allies. But what he says here is the West is a racial and religious term. To be considered a Western country, or to be considered Western, a country must be largely Christian uh, and largely white. Um, well, Western civilization, because it started in uh, ancient Greece and then made its way to ancient Rome and then with Christianity and uh, carried the torch through Europe and then Great Britain. And, you know, I'm doing the history of Western civilization in like 15 seconds here. But uh, it is actually a set of beliefs and ideology. It is Judeo-Christian, and it is the history of a region with many different peoples from all over the world. I think it's interesting that he suggests that these countries, uh, that their ethnic identity is somehow more important than their ideology, when in fact uh, there has been uh, there have been migrations of peoples uh, from, well— the Muslim world, North Africa, uh, as far away as Mongolia, in fact, into what is now known as the West. Uh, and there's there's no particular way, as I was saying before, to, to draw these boundaries that is precise. But I suppose we're supposed to take from this that Western civilization is not something that is definable and also not something that should be defensible. Uh where where does that leave us, by the way? You'll notice, I mean, th this passes for being scholarly on the left, saying that Western civilization is unique and special and is an ideology and is not race racially or ethnically based, despite what the progressives will say. Um, but they just always prefer to denigrate Western civilization, and they wonder why people don't really want to hear there are 30,000-foot thoughts on everything going on all over the world. They just don't understand the very basics about what's uh, going on. Uh, all right, got to hit a break here, team. We'll be back in just a few. Stay with me. I honestly waver back and forth on whether I think that the media is aware of its uh, leftist liberal bias or if they're so self-deluded that they, they really deep down and in quiet moments think that they are just providing the public with a necessary service, that they are the guardians of our republic, that they are a necessary part of our democratic processes and that they're just bringing the truth and facts to the American people without agenda without partisanship. Do they really believe that crap? I, I, I go back and forth because if they, uh, if they are just doing or just putting that out there to be cynical and to engage in a form of preventative or preemptive, I should say, propaganda, okay, I mean, they're dishonest, but at least I understand what's going on. But are, are they really, is it possible that they are completely disconnected from reality? Uh, you have Jim Acosta, a former colleague of mine, although I think some people at CNN would sneer at the notion of a conservative like me having been a colleague, but 
I was a CNN conservative political commentator for two years. I should note, by the way, that I was often introduced that way. Conservative political commentator, Buck Sexton. Uh, They didn't do that with anyone else, meaning on the other side of the political spectrum. When I would debate Van Jones or they would have me uh, against Maria Cardona or any number of the Democrat talking points uh, crowd, they would always just say, uh, political analyst or political commentator, but I was a conservative political commentator because that was a way of rigging the fight to let the audience know he's the bad guy here. Let the CNN audience know that Buck is the conservative, boo, and now the host and whomever's supposed to be playing the counterpoint role will show you how distasteful he is, his positions, and will engage in some form of uh, of on-air ambush. Uh, that's That was my experience dealing with it over there, and that's just the truth of it. Now, given my own uh, recollections of what it was like to be a CNN uh, commentator, uh, it's amazing to me that you have people like Jim Acosta, who, in a way, was my uh, short-term colleague. I was his short-term colleague, however you want to put it. And he writes on Twitter, again, because this is how media people now are all talking to each other, And this is where they spend a lot of their energy now. Some of the biggest names in media spend a lot of their time just sharing thoughts on Twitter. Acosta writes, one of, he wrote, isn't it a fake news conference to take a question from a reporter who is essentially an ally of the White House? Ooh. And then he also wrote, uh, this is Jim Acosta at CNN, their chief White House correspondent. One of the questions came from a reporter who acknowledged he had just talked to the White House about a job last month. Uh, Is he serious? Is that is that for real? Is that supposed to be something that he just puts out there and does not expect people to pounce on Uh, the former White House? And this is why it's so hard. And I understand the hesitation among many Trump supporters, to uh, call to to say that he's gone too far in his fights with the media, or uh, because it is such a rigged game, the, the odds are so stacked against Republicans and particularly against Trump that a, a conventional strategy against the media is clearly not sufficient because you're looking at a nine to one left to right, Democrat to Republican ratio among journalists. And that's just, those are the facts. Those are the numbers, right? It's journalism is 90% Democrat dominated and and has been for a long time. uh, Anyway, I mean, it's just so frustrating to watch this happen. And there's so little accountability from uh, Democrats on this. And they just, they don't care how obvious it's all become now. And I think that there is a widespread feeling among people that what's going on right now is a necessary corrective, that the assault on the media is really actually defense. It's preventing the media from completely flooding the field and overrunning the opposition, which we've been close to in recent years. And we've seen that they've gone after, they've specifically targeted the left and these activist groups and these boycott groups have targeted Fox News in recent years. We are well aware of the fact that the left likes to return to the fairness doctrine or uh, FCC regulations of any any number of them. 
in an effort to curb conservative speech. And they look to use, I think, I believe you'll see more of this, the major social media platforms as censors over what is, in fact, acceptable and not acceptable speech to include issues of public importance, to include uh, those areas of public debate that should be wide open for different ideas and uh, opposing views. But CNN, I mean, you can't make this stuff up they still seem to believe that there was no uh, press preference for Barack Obama that was on display for all of America for eight years. I mean, it, it, was, it was embarrassing, in fact, what was going on under the Obama administration. Uh, it was embarrassing for the American people to watch reporters honestly de- debase themselves all in an effort uh, to curry favor with the administration. I mean, to just be a bunch of toadies, uh, to be a bunch of throne-shining, supplicant, quizzling uh, wimps, which is what the press corps became under the Obama administration. It was truly appalling. Nothing that's happening right now with regard to people from the media Uh, Working in administration is new or unprecedented at all. We all know former White House spokesman Jay Carney was a Time magazine Democrat leftist journalist in good standing. And and in fact, there are, uh, from what I understand, a couple of dozen journalists that move in and out of the administration uh, in various public facing White House roles. So this is and either people that were in the White House that are journalists now or people that uh, were journalists that moved into the not not now I'm talking about in the, in the Obama administration that were journalists that moved into the administration like Jay Carney uh, there were uh, th- this was commonplace there was a lot of this going on and now we're supposed to believe that the press corps is being too favorable towards Trump or the Trump only calls on favorable press it's just nonsense and the uh, the mainstream media is so lacking in the most basic self awareness. I saw our buddy Sean Davis write in response, Sean Davis of the Federalist, in response to uh, that Jim Acosta CNN tweet that he, quote, I don't recall you complaining when a New York Times reporter asked Obama what enchanted him most about being president. The press embarrassed themselves for eight years, for almost a decade. And those of us who did not think that every Obama word, every pronouncement, every speech, every policy was just further evidence to his transcendent brilliance, right? Those who, those of us who didn't buy into that, we lost any faith that we had in the media's objectivity then. But now the press turns around. They're like, what do, you, what do you mean you think we're biased? What do you mean you think we're anti-Trump? We're just telling the truth. We're just speaking truth to power. It doesn't work that way. And I have to say, the Internet, I think, plays a very large role in this, not just because of the dissemination of information, which is much more rapid now. So when some CNN reporter makes some crap up or says something that contradicts what he said a month ago or a year ago, same thing on MSNBC, same for any pundit now, any one of us can fact check that person. That is that is incredibly different from the era of like Dan Rather as the voice of the voice of American news at CBS and, you know, these and, and the uh, the other, you know, the uh, Peter Jennings and, and other people of that generation and stature in journalism and in the media, uh, there was no fact-checking of them by outside, by individuals. 
by not just bloggers, but by private citizens. You couldn't do that. There was no there was no way to go back realistically and see how they had been uh, covering a presidency or how they had been treating a uh, members of an administration or uh, the president himself. Now we can all see it. We have recall of what journalists have done. We have recall of how they covered the Obama administration instantaneously on the Internet. And we have mass dissemination of that information. And that is why we just don't trust the media. That is why people who pretend to be nonpartisan, objective journalists are perpetuating a fraud against the American people. And journalists know that their time is is up with this stuff. We'll be back in a few, team. Much more. Stay with me. Some major and troubling developments in the transgender rights debate happening over the last few days. Don't know how many of you may have caught this because of all the attention given to North Korea and, well, even more attention to Trump's uh, wrestling video gif that he tweeted out and all the responses in the media to that. But uh, Portland, Oregon, is now giving out or rather the state of of Oregon uh, is giving out uh, identification cards that have non-binary under gender. And the Oregon Department of Motor Vehicles has now said that residents can just have an ID with an X X marker instead of gender. Uh, That's not the only place. And by the way, Washington, D.C. has also done this, and other states are certain to follow suit. So now they have decided that gender is a decision. Gender is not a reality. You aren't male or female. You're whatever you say you are. This is astonishing. So this, so Oregon is giving uh, these X-marker gender-neutral identification cards. And there's also in Canada, which I know is not us, but just to our north, uh, an extension of this idea to parents who are now saying that their babies want to be, or, or I shouldn't say the babies want to be, the parents want the babies to be genderless. Parents are making this decision. This was reported in Newsweek just a few days ago. Uh, one parent named Corey, I don't know, it's not said in the article. This is what we're heading towards, by the way, folks, where you'll have news articles that don't identify as male or female so as not to, the, the people involved will not be identified as male or female so as not to fall into the cisgender uh, hierarchy, patriarchy, whatever you want to call it, that that non-binary is the way of the future, according to the progressive left and its media accomplices. So Corey, in this article, don't know who, whether Corey's male or female, uh, does not identify as male or female, obviously, and wants to have a wants the baby in this relationship to have a birth certificate that does not specify sex. Quote, this is what uh, the parent says here. I'm raising Cyril, S-E-A-R-Y-L. I'm raising Cyril in such a way that until they have the sense of self and command of vocabulary to tell me who they are, I'm recognizing them as a baby and trying to give them all the love and support to be the most whole person that they can be outside of the restrictions that come with the boy box and the girl box. You'll notice that 
here we have a news report quoting a parent referring to a baby as they. But you see, even if you buy into this whole non-binary, non-cisgender, intersectional view of society, even if you think that that's acceptable for whatever reason, and I know many of you listening are like, that's crazy, but I know. Using they is just wrong. It's just factually wrong because they is a plural pronoun for more than one person. So now are, are we supposed to... I, I, I just put this out there. How far are we from having to recognize an individual who believes that there are several people trapped inside as numerous people? Using the pronoun they is just incorrect, right? They refers to more than one. And yet here, because someone doesn't want to be either male or female, we are told to use the pronoun they. And in Canada, they are criminalizing refusal to go along with this insanity. It will be a violation of Canadian law to use the pronoun that is biologically determined, and in this case, even a question of singular versus plural. Uh, the, the progressives are not just happy to eradicate gender roles and, of course, in the process, try to destroy the traditional family, uh, but they do violence against language itself. They destroy language and the precision of language and, and that words can have simple and plain meaning in our discourse. Uh, this is very troubling. And on that notion, by the way, of what they do to language, uh, I, I want to point out that the very description of this issue of trans of being transgender, they've changed the terminology. And this has just happened in recent years, just like we saw with uh, illegal alien turn into illegal immigrant, turn into undocumented immigrant. Now, gender identity disorder, which is what someone who thinks he is male but is really female or thinks he is female but is or whatever, thinks is female but is really male, uh, that is now called gender dysphoria. And gender dysphoria is a very loaded term because dysphoria just means dissatisfaction. You don't like something. So this change in terminology, in the medical terminology, mind you, is already a concession to the idea that someone is unhappy with their gender and we should make them happy. You'll notice that it is not a disorder, it is an unhappiness. It is a state of mind. It is no longer a medical reality that you are male or female. You are now said to be in a state of unhappiness, depression, because of your gender not matching your gender identity. The, uh, the hoops that one has to jump through here, the, the intellectual gymnastics you have to engage in for this to make sense, and it never makes sense. But it just keeps running around and around circles. And by the way, the more detached from reality we get here, you will also notice a corresponding increase in the rage of those on the left who push this stuff. So, as I said, in Oregon right now, they have gender-neutral ID cards. You can just get an X. In Canada, they want to be able... There's a, This is now going through the system, and they're, they're fighting this in court. They, they want there to be... Well, one, you have to use the pronoun of of whatever the person tells you it is, including they, which is just wrong. And if I can be forced to call some individual they, that person should be forced to call me his royal highness. Okay? It's crazy. 
Um, and, and this is, it's a violation of basic intellectual freedom to be forced by the state to say things are true that are untrue. This leads, my friends, to a very dark, a very unsettling place. Uh, this does not end well when you have the state forcing you in the course of your day-to-day activities in your life to lie, which is exactly what's going on here. But you'll notice that the shift has already happened. We are no longer merely talking about transgender adults and their rights and their interactions with the states. Uh, and by the way, the whole notion of transgender rights is a construct. The people who, who self-identify as transgender have all the rights that every other person in the country have. They want, they want the creation of additional rights based on, well, what they want, based on whim, based on emotional uh, and psychological compulsion, predilection. Well, I'm not, I'm not really sure even how we're supposed to define it. But it's not enough for this to be about adults who are demanding rights. Now adults want to impose this on children. And this is where I think the, the next level of this battle uh, will be. This is where we will see the real fight. It's already turned into problems and, and disputes because of bathrooms where boys and girls are supposed to now be using bathrooms together because one student in a school may identify as transgender. And keep in mind, the Obama administration didn't just go along with this rhetorically or in theory. President Obama threatened to pull federal funding from schools that did not go along with the diktat from D.C. that you better allow someone to identify as another gender and use all of the facilities, play on all of the sports teams of that gender, or else they will pull, the federal government will pull federal funding from those schools. Um, that is absolute coercion. Uh, that is moral blackmail. And that was the Obama administration's response on this issue. So we, we've seen it already filter down into schools, but now we're seeing it filter down into children, including, in this case, babies that will no longer be marked on their birth certificate as male or female necessarily if, we, if, if this Canadian couple has their way, and I'm sure others will follow suit. Part of the problem here is that progressivism, liberalism in the current context is a lifestyle choice uh, as much as it is an ideology. And therefore, it's also a question of being fashionable. And we'll see this now. Transgenderism, because it is on the very edge of progressivism, transgenderism is now fashionable. It's cool. It's hip. And, and it's not just for those who identify as transgender, those who support this, those who go along with this, those who are vocal in destroying the oppression of our cisgender-focused system. Cisgen cisgender, by the way, just means corresponding to your physical, biological sex, right? Cisgender just means that's, that, that is your, your physical gender. Uh, and so that they say cisgender, though, doesn't really matter because, again, gender is a psychological, uh, psychological construct. So, and this is going to get a little, little bit of uh, in, in the weeds here for a second, but let's also be clear that they will argue on the one side of this that there are people who are non-gender non binary, meaning that there are people who are born with the uh, sex organs of both male and female. It's incredibly rare, but there are babies where that, 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 is, that, that happens. Uh, so they'll say, well, see, gender can be more confusing than that physically. 
Well, then the response always is, okay, for those individuals, maybe we should make allowances, but that's a that would be a medical condition. That would be a, a medical reality. And the people that are transgender that we're talking about here are not falling into that medical category. They are psychological, meaning they, as a, as a function of how they feel, their, their brain, they believe, is different, is a different gender than the body that they were born into, so to speak. Uh, so they can't have it both ways. It can't be based on medical reality, but also based on emotional and psychological position. And this is now why it's just all devolving into incoherence and it will get nastier and nastier the further they push this and the less defensible their position becomes, uh, the, the more irrational it becomes. So, but now we have to talk about what's going on with, with children and how the medical profession is being forced to be made complicit in this. It is utter insanity and it's a disgrace and we'll talk more about it in a second so i want to continue our discussion here about transgender rights and how of course it starts with adults they're just claiming acceptance and then they demand uh, obedience and and also celebration, right? So at first, it well, I'm, it should I should say it starts, and this is the progressive playbook. It starts with tolerance, just just let's tolerate each other, and then it's acceptance, just accept me and what I do, and then it is celebration. Come on, be happy for me, and then it's obedience. You better be happy for me. You better celebrate this. You better say this is great, or else the state and society will come down on you. That is the standard progressive uh, social warfare playbook, right? That's what they do. That's how they run this stuff. And on the issue of transgender rights, it's already expanded beyond adults to include transgender rights, so to speak, quote-unquote, for children. And the, the fact of the matter is that you're seeing the medical profession, just as scientists have been bullied and co-opted into the uh, climate change movement such that now if you are a uh, if you are somebody who is guilty of uh, if you're guilty of heresy on climate change which means that you abandon the climate change orthodoxy uh, you will be crushed they will destroy you they will annihilate you they will not forgive they will not forget uh, we're seeing that now increasingly with medical doctors on transgender rights issues so uh, there was an excellent piece written in the, uh, the Daily Signal by Michelle Critella, who is, a, who is an MD and is the president of the American College of Pediatricians. And she was writing about the current state of uh, medicine when it comes to what is now called gender, or gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder. Um, and here's just something from the piece to give you a sense of how widespread the problem is. Quote, pediatric gender clinics are considered elite centers for affirming children who are distressed by their biological sex. This distressful condition, once dubbed uh, gender identity disorder, was renamed gender dysphoria in 2013. In 2014, there were 24 of these gender clinics clustered chiefly along the East Coast and in California. One year later... There were 40 across the nation, with 215 pediatric residency programs now training future pediatricians 
in a transition-affirming protocol and treating gender dysphoric children accordingly, gender clinics are bound to proliferate further. Now, you might be wondering, what is this protocol? So now you have pediatricians, kids' doctors, who are being trained as part of their profession that gender identity disorder should be uh, affirmed and catered to and that they should be uh, allowing children at a young age and assisting them medically to go along with this. And here's what that means in practice. Here are what the medical consequences of this are. Quote, the transition-affirming protocol tells parents to treat their children as the gender they desire and to place them on puberty blockers around age 11 or 12 if they are gender dysphoric. By age 16, if the children still insist they are trapped in the wrong body, they are placed on cross-sex hormones and biological girls may obtain a double mastectomy. So-called bottom surgeries or genital reassignment surgeries are not recommended before age 18, though some surgeons have recently argued against this restriction. Folks, doctors are now being trained to, if a girl is confused in her early teen years, to remove her chest. Doctors are being trained by 18, if someone has a gender identity disorder issue, to change their, their genita- genitalia. And at even younger ages to put puberty blockers in their system to prevent the onset of puberty. If you're male, they give you more estrogen. If you're female, they give you more testosterone. People don't know if this is safe. Never mind if this is a good idea. And all the data shows so far, it does not lessen suicide attempts. It does not uh, result in healthy mental, uh, mental health outcomes. And... In this piece, the, this MD writes, bottom line, transition-affirming protocol with doctors now is child abuse. This is institutionalized child abuse with the medical community being brought into this as well out of fear because they're worried that they will be treated. If you now stand up against uh, puberty blockers for preteens because of ge- uh, transgender rights, you'll be treated the same way that a scientist who calls into question the nonsense hysteria over climate change catastrophism. Uh, you'll be destroyed. Your career will be destroyed. This, my friends, is is really upsetting. And it just shows that the left will, in fact, institutionalize the abuse of children if it serves their political ends. That is what is happening. Let's not mince words. Let's be clear about this. And this needs to be uh, met full on with arguments that expose the nonsense, the hysteria, the pandering, and the uh, insanity that is at the root of it. All right, team. uh, Thank you, as always, for joining me here. Excited to have a Freestyle Friday show with you tomorrow. Until then, my friends, no matter what comes your way, you know your orders. Shields high.